0: last spot in the NHL's Final Four is up for grabs tonight. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. What a
1: cursed series, by the way. <laughs> Truly, I mean, this series, like, I am i don't know who's going to win tonight, but I know that the shot clock's going to be something like 35-20 in Carolina's favor. Yeah. And their inability to get it done on the road leaves them vulnerable to getting goalied by the best goaltender in the NHL this season. Uh, at home, where they haven't lost yet in the playoffs, it should be said, and where they've been materially better than the Rangers. They've been materially better throughout the series, but for whatever reason, once they go to MSG, they start to give up, up power plays, they start to give up early goals, they start to chase, and that's not the Carolina Hurricanes game. Going to be an interesting night. Going to be a very interesting game in a series that's been dreadful. Yeah. Like, definitely this is the red-headed stepchild um, of the of the second round.
0: It actually reminds me, and by the way, I'm Jamie Dodd. He's Canucks insider Thomas Drantz. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of the series we saw wrap up uh, in the NBA last night, or where it went seven games and it was even like kind of, well, it was close. I mean, Jimmy Butler had a shot to put them up uh, with 20 seconds left in that game. It was close, but it never felt all that entertaining. I know you were saying off air, well, you know, it was kind of like a rock fight. You enjoyed it on that end, but it was close it went to seven games but it never felt particularly exciting or entertaining or compelling and and i think the quality of play in the carolina new york series has been better you know relative to our sport than what we saw from miami and boston but it is that kind of thing where it's like
1: oh this is uh going to seven games
0: great <laughs> awesome uh, yeah another game of this one well
1: it's just i mean imagine if we'd had calgary edmonton go seven we'd be like ooh, oh, be incredible. delicious incredible. and instead this is like I'll eat it, but I'm not happy about it. Tampa, Florida. Remember that series? That was yeah. the same round as this. <laughs> this, is, this is when you're on a long road trip, and you just need to... Like, instead of... If if Calgary, Edmonton had gone seven, that's like a steak dinner. Like, you yeah. look forward to it all week. It's on your schedule. You dress up for it. You're, like, rubbing your hands together. Like, mmm, yum. This is, like, something you grab at a gas station. You know? Because you need the sustenance yeah. on a 12-hour road drive or something. Like, yeah. this is... That's what this is. We have to get through it. Um, you know, what's interesting, though, is I think either option against the Lightning is going to be really interesting. It's just that I have no appetite for much more of this. Like, if it goes to overtime, I'm going to be like, ah, stop. And and the idea of me feeling that way about game seven playoff overtime, I probably won't in the moment, but that's how I feel about it right now. As, As I think about what this series, or or what the series has looked like, and what Game Seven is going to look like today.
0: Well, at least uh, with with no hockey on yesterday, at least it's back. And as you said, maybe not the ideal form, but something we got to get through a hurdle we got to jump over before we get to the conference finals. By the way, Canucks Hour <laughs> brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators,
1: and loaders from Avenue Machinery, machinery avenuemachinery.ca. I just quickly want to note, I heard from a contact, an industry contact this week, who said that I'd manifested an Edmonton Rangers Stanley Cup (laughs) final. They said that I'd accidentally manifested it. Um, So that's the other, that's the, I guess, the one bit of stakes today that I'm looking forward to is, you know, is this, is this going to continue the, um you know, manifestation that I've inadvertently brought into the world, birthed into the world like I've seized it from the underground, like Matthew Modine. Um you I know. I did think of you, Dranser actually, speaking of other sports,
0: watching the Champion Leagues, Champions League final on Saturday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> the dominant in control, all over the place team getting goalied. Wow. Getting
1: keepered by Thibaut Courtois, one of the best goaltending performances you'll ever see. I mean, this is the this is the lucky that's the luckiest european champion ever right i mean when you think about the comeback against psg when you think about how unlikely the comeback was against man city uh the Grealish shot that veered inches wide and would have sealed it and then the other Grealish shot that's uh saved off the goal line basically by a by a real defender um that they won the champions league is is pretty remarkable and and you know Everyone thinks like, oh, Real, whatever, right? Real yeah, always win. wins. Of course. But but the Spanish teams are in such dire straits financially, especially relative to the boon of the Premier League teams, the, the television boon uh, that those teams have come into. Um, and, it, and it's interesting because I do think we're in a moment of club football where the European teams are on the verge of unprecedented ascendancy. Like, we're about to go back to the 1970s where it was like, Nottingham, Nottingham, Nottingham. Liverpool, Liverpool, right? Like, we're about to go back to that, I think, over the next decade. Like, I won't be stunned if we see two or three English-based European champions a year, like, across the uh, UEFA tournaments, um, you know, for much of the next 10 years, just because of the amount of TV money flowing into the Prem. And, yeah, I, I mean it wasn't to be this year that's a miracle run like that's that an anything a can happen true run true miracle run and uh, but you know the champions league set up to facilitate that right it's even it's an even smaller sample uh, with a game that's almost as random if not more random although finishing talent is so much larger in terms of impacting the outcomes of the soccer game so uh debatable but yeah a pretty incredible miracle run there that was definitely an anything can happen um European tournament win for for Madrid. Yeah, it's kind of disguised by his because it was pulled off by the ultimate European powerhouse in Real Madrid. You yeah. know what
0: I mean? So you don't think like oh Cinderella run, but, but it was it complete Cinderella, was Cinderella stuff. Cinderella oh, run. it was an absolute
1: Cinderella run. Incredible uh, stuff.
0: You, you know, it is the uh, the dry time in the Canucks calendar when we, we
1: we start off the show Canucks hour with a little bit. Oh, of I've Euro- got European footy analysis. I've got Madrid takes, <laughs> and well, and truly, truly too. I just want to I just want to check this really quick because. Monaco. We had Monaco in uh-huh. F one. We had the um Champions League final. In Paris, yeah. In Paris. We had the uh, and have you seen Troy Stetcher going to basically everything on his no, Instagram story? He was, shout out to him. He was at the French he was at the French Open and the uh Champions League wow. final. Wow. I was I was very impressed. Um Good for him. That's such a good way, like you get eliminated from the playoffs, you just go on an ultimate sports trip in Europe. Tremendous stuff. Well, I was thinking there must have been a lot of, you know, people in that stratosphere who did the uh the
0: Champions League final Monaco Grand Prix 1-2, pre- yeah, right? It's just a short trip from Paris to Monaco. And that will set you back a little bit, but not a bad way to spend a weekend.
1: But we have an NBA Game 7 in the, in the conference final. We had some really good hockey played. I mean, this was a really fun weekend, including, I mean, it was a do-or-die Game 6 at MSG, some romance there. Uh, this was, like, as good a sports weekend as you could possibly have. And, you know, caps off today with an NHL Game 7. Pretty nice. Pretty nice stuff, Jamie. Now let's uh, just hope... That at some point Vancouver can be a big part of a major sports story, right? Like, you know, that the Canucks can play at this time of year because man, when you get when you get a weekend like that, it's it's hard to, you know, put down your apps and not be checking scores in a variety of different leagues. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, Not so, to mention your wagers.
0: Fantastic sports <laughs> weekend. Um, we do have, now, since this is Canucks hour, Dr. Answer, and by the way, everyone can text in 650, 650 dumbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dumbarlumber.com. we got a little bit of Canucks breaking news that just came across, and it is the that uh, the Canucks and general manager Patrick Alvine have announced that the club has made multiple additions to its player development staff. Now, a couple of reassignments here as well in that Daniel and Henrik Sedin, it says, After spending a season gaining knowledge and experience in the club's hockey operations department as special advisors to the general manager, Daniel and Henrik Sedin will transition to new roles within player development, working daily on and off the ice with young players in Vancouver and Abbotsford. And it says also joining the club are former NHLers, Michael Samuelson, of course, a former Canuck, and Mike Comisarek, who will primarily work with Canucks prospects throughout the organization. And then it also says assistant general manager Kami Granato will continue to oversee the player de- development department alongside senior director, player development, and amateur Canucks general manager, Ryan Johnson, while Chris Higgins remains in his current position as assistant director player development so there you go the Sedines moving from kind of general special advisor roles to specific roles within player development also adding Michael Samuelson and Mike
1: Komiseric to the player development front in the Canucks organization so don't have a ton of thoughts uh here yet you know Daniel and Henrik are very deliberate so if they're doing this they there's if they're if they're going into this direction there's you know, a, a good reason for it. There's, there's something that they've found uh, within their first year that they've particularly enjoyed, something that they've found some passion for, um, and, and want to be part of something that's perhaps a little bit more hands-on as opposed to nebulously defined and, and wide-ranging. Um, Mikhail Samuelson's an interesting ad. Uh, Mikhail Samuelson is still in outrageous shape. <laughs> right, like Mikhail Samuelson is a—he a, was in great shape as a player. He was yeah. in great shape as a player. He he came in and and I believe the year that he first was signed to that three-year, two-point-five million-dollar deal, um, you know, a, a, a tremendous and underrated, like one of the best free agent signings, UFA signings in Connect's history, although it's rarely talked about that way. Uh, every bit as impactful as as Dan as the likes of Dan Hamus Anyway, um, I believe that was the only year the Twins didn't win fitness testing. Was the year that they signed Mikael Samuelson. Um, he, he had a bad attitude as a player, too. And I mean, then a, a good way, like the way that, uh, you know, a uh, rough and tumble uh, guy at the net front, you know, right. could, could get mad, uh, could take some licks, could give some licks. Um, interesting, interesting name there. Mike Komisarek, obviously, long career as a shutdown guy. I think what's most interesting here is the lack of a promotion for Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've been expecting that he would get some sort of official recognition for the fact that he did so much over the course of the season. To me, that's like obviously the headline is always going to be what's happening with Henrik and Daniel around this yeah. team, but for me the the most surprising bit is it it feels like this release affirms Ryan Johnson's role within the organization and and it's basically unchanged as opposed to um, you know, him being given more responsibility. Uh, within within the organization itself, which you know, considering all that, all all of the sort of items that he himself executes, uh, is, is a bit of a surprise to me. So that's my quick take, quick first blush reaction to some of that news. Uh, Mikhail Samuelson's a really interesting guy, really really smart guy. Don't know Mike Komisarik very well, but I mean he had a lengthy long career. NHL career, yeah, long yeah. and and was pretty effective in at various stages, even as the game changed significantly. Uh, away from his skill set. Uh, you know, he managed to figure it out. I think there's some lessons there, certainly, in, in adaptability. And then the Sidians seemingly putting sort of their first foot forward in terms of figuring out exactly what they're looking to do and what they're passionate about within hockey operations. I think that's a, a fantastic development for and, the club. and right from the start of their
0: involvement with the club, that was what they said they were looking to do, right, was mm-hmm. gather information, basically do just really intensive due diligence and figure out what the best way – the be- best fit for them would be you know both for what they're passionate about and what they excel at doing but also how they can help uh the club and it seems like we're at for for at least right now they've landed on roles in player development so there you go again and look not a whole bunch of context or opinion to add at this point we'll see uh if we hear from more from Canucks GM Patrick Alvin or any of the principals involved here but Again, Daniel and Henrik Sedin transitioning to new roles in player development, and uh, former NHLers Mikhail Samuelson and Mike Komisarek joining the team as and, well. And are there titles there? Uh, no, it just says that uh, joining the club are former NHLers yep. who will be working primarily with Canucks prospects throughout the organization, so, so in the player development department.
1: So let's add, too, we've we we've talked a little bit about the idea of the like the bright former player with a passion for uh, the game, um, and... and the Rutherford apparatus of the development coach, right? I wonder if this sort of fits if that's not going to be their titles, it certainly fits within that framework of what we were talking about the Pittsburgh Penguins often leaning on with folks like Mark Recchi and Sergei Gonchar in years past.
0: And interesting, with Samuelson, prior to this, he was the GM of a team in Sweden. So he has
1: coaching Faber, what's the team experience as well. It's uh, I, I I didn't All want Spence. to uh, what team?
0: I didn't want to try to so put an no, it's su- shooter Taj.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> no, I know. Close I know. Enough. Close enough. I know it's like S-O- yeah, yeah. S-, S-, yeah, S O. Yeah, S O D E R T A L J E. Shooter Taj. Yeah, that's
0: pretty much what I said. Yeah, you were good. Yeah, yeah. there we go. So, anyways, he was. The, he's been the GM of that team for three years. Before that, he was doing uh, European development coaching for the Blackhawks. So he has experience on the executive side and on the coaching side. That's an interesting one. Uh, kind of nugget as well as, again, we talk about Rutherford and Alvine kind of putting an emphasis on developing smart hockey players, giving them chances to grow, and maybe another example of that here. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I mean, that fits well within the rubric of what we've come to expect with Rutherford's overall um, hockey operations groups in the past. Uh, Huge emphasis put on hockey people, hockey experience, hard on-ice experience, and uh, a ton of emphasis put on developing, you know, smart, hardworking people within that framework and with that experience on the executive side. So, um, I mean, that's a lot of former players uh, being brought into the organization. Uh, A lot of people, I think, really highly of, right? I mean, you know, Chris Higgins, Ryan Johnson are extremely bright. Chris Higgins, Yale guy, Mm -hmm. no big deal. And, uh, and I mean, Samuelson obviously has a ton of relevant experience. Kamisarek, uh, where was he before? Do you know? Do you have it up? Kamisarek,
0: yeah. Just one second here. Uh, he, was due, he did three seasons of player development for the Buffalo Sabres ending in 2020. Before right. that, he said two seasons as an undergraduate assistant coach uh, with the Michigan Wolverines while he was completing his degree there. So, very cool. Guy who went back to school to a very good school
1: in Michigan. So there you go, right? Was like, part of a very good program uh, with Michigan as well. So, yeah. And and that, that commitment to education. Did you see Brooks Orpik went back to school? Yes. I loved that. I, I, I love the uh I love the pro athletes who who go back, finish their education, uh really prioritize that. You think about a guy like Craig McTavish who went back and did his MBA after his coaching career. Um love to see that. So yeah, so bright people, relevant experience, uh interesting set of hires, and, and we'll sort of see. I mean, what's really interesting to me is the sort of group that the Canucks have assembled now on the front office side is massive, right? This is a huge tent now relative to the two guys sitting in a room making most of the decisions, um, you know, framework that existed for much of the past eight years. This is a totally disparate uh, approach from what we've become used to just in terms of the amount of bodies in And, And I would still assume whether an additional body comes in on the pro side uh, I would bet, I would bet one does at some point in this off season, I would bet that they build out the amateur side more significantly. I still think changes are coming in that department, which is not to have any callers getting tight as a result of me saying that, <laughs> uh, that could be ads as opposed to subtractions, but perhaps a little bit of column a a little bit of column B. Uh, so we're going to see even more changes happen. And you know, what's interesting is a lot of these folks, you know, obviously we know Samuelson and the twins, would go back. He was their occasional line mate. Uh, Higgins, obviously Ryan Johnson, all those guys were teammates at, at one point or another. I don't know that Ryan Johnson was ever teammates with Chris Higgins, but no, they've worked together yeah. for years. Um, commissaric, that's a new sort of wrinkle in here. But more than that, when you build a group and the challenge for them is go have arguments, right? Go have frank discussions, go communicate, um, you know, figure out your lanes, figure out how to work together on a pretty complex project, a pretty sophisticated operation. If you're doing it right, um, you know, it takes some time. You don't just get put with somebody, uh, a colleague and immediately hit it off. You don't get put with a new line mate and immediately have chemistry in hockey. Um, you know, me and Chris Faber got thrown together last week and it was rough. <laughs> Our listeners will tell you it was rough. It took us a few days so, you know, it, sometimes you have to figure it out. There's growing pains involved. And the problem for the Canucks here is you can look through the front office staff. You can look through the staff directory these days and say, hey, look, there's a lot of good things happening here, right? There's a lot of smart people who've been brought in. Uh, there's a pretty diverse set of skills. You know, they brought in a former agent with a law degree they've, who also played uh, Div 1, captained her Div 1 hockey team. You've got Cammy Granato, a, a pro scout. Uh, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, wo- woman hockey players of all time. Uh, you've got Derek Clancy, a player personnel guy, helped construct a couple uh, Stanley Cup winners. Patrick Alvine, 20 years of experience within uh, amateur scouting. He's been assistant general manager, highly thought of around the league. Uh, you know, various teams tried to poach him, causing him to be promoted within the Penguins organization multiple times over the course of his career. Um, you know, now you add all of these fine people, uh Mikhail Samuelson, on and on. And that's great, but how does it all fit, right? How do you learn to work together? Who ends up having weight? Um, you know, how does the jockeying for carving out a lane, carving out a niche, uh, having the assignment of tasks, how is that going to work? And is everyone going to be able to assume those duties like clockwork, right? Uh, you know, you think about Cami Granado, for example, who's running player development, but also certainly seems to be playing a really significant role shaping some of the changes we saw in the amateur and pro scouting staff. So, I mean, that's a huge portfolio at that point for an assistant general manager. You're talking about someone who's almost doubling in player personnel and running player development. Like that's a massive portfolio. Where does that leave Derek Clancy, a career player personnel guy? Um, you know, Ryan Johnson doesn't get the promotion, uh, which we've all been assuming he will get. Now this isn't the final word on it. Perhaps that'll still come, but, Certainly seems odd to announce a bunch of changes within the department he ran. Yeah, and not announce it at the same time. Name check that the assistant general manager now runs that department, right? And he's sort of basically with the same title, maybe the the title senior thrown in. Now, granted, he's also the GM of the Abbotsford Canucks, so it's not it's not as if he's simply a director. But you know, you sort of wonder, like, how is this all functioning? Uh, not that I'm not that I'm hearing anything negative from within the organization to, to be clear, but just understanding the dynamics of change, change management within organizations, change management within hockey teams in particular, um, you know, it's not like you hit the ground running with a totally new group, most of whom don't have built-in or prior relationships, right? And function at 100% on day one. You don't. Like, there's, there's a feeling out process as you are put with any new coworkers in any line of work and managing an NHL team is no different, and and sort of, what's interesting about that is is we'll see, we'll see what happens. Fact is is that it can't be worse than some of what we're departing. So change was desperately needed. I like a lot of the bones of what we're seeing, but with where the Canucks are positioned right now, with how high leverage some of the decisions are going to be this summer, with echoes beyond. You think about Besser. You think about Miller. You think about Bo Horvat. The extendables, as it were. You think about the importance of this draft. Uh, you think about you know all of the decisions that this club will face in short order that are, are going to effectively define what this team can be during Hughes and Pedersen's prime seasons. I mean, this is high-stakes stuff, and you know you have to, as a group, even if you're not going to be as effective today as you will be in 18 months, find a way to do enough right, right? Find a find a way to hit the ground running enough that you can make hay this summer, that you can begin to course correct for an organization that's been listless for far too long. And to your point about the importance
0: of, okay, not just bringing in the talent, but making sure on a kind of day-to-day administrative level that it's working well together, that you're getting the most out of all that talent you're invested in, I do think that's an area where, again... It's going to pay off the fact that you went to the president of hockey ops and GM structure, right? Rather than just having the one guy at the top of the pyramid who's also doing all the GM stuff and trying to be the administrator who's running everything, having somebody with the chops that Jim Rutherford has, who's also made a point of emphasizing that he wants to be a mentor here, right? I think that is going to be crucial to... Making this not just bringing the people in, attracting them, convincing them to come here, right? But making sure they're working together, making sure you're getting the best out of the front office as well. And just quickly on your point about uh, lots of the connections between these people who've played together, either in Vancouver or elsewhere, uh, as Kevin from Coquitlam points out, uh, Commissarik and Higgins crossed over significantly in Montreal, but four seasons together with the Montreal Canadiens, both New York State guys as well. So, I'm right. uh, Presumably, a, a relationship and maybe a friendship even there between Commissarik and Higgins. Well,
1: and I believe Commissarik also is a New Englander. New York, New York. Yeah. Okay, but as so as is Higgins. As so as both is Higgins. New York. Well, guys. yeah, Higgins yeah. is Long Island, but yes, well, it's still New York, I guess. <laughs> 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 okay, so but is he? I I wonder if Commissarik's based out of Boston because that area, because that area is somewhere you do need some coverage in particularly as Ryan Johnson's portfolio has expanded and he's had less time to be out on the road, for example, right? It's not like he's in Utica anymore, right? Like It's not like it's easy for him to get to some of those East Coast. I know that there's been a big travel burden on the likes of Higgins. If you're going to be recruiting college free agents, for example, right, putting in that face time is, is really essential. Uh, you know, you think about um, this past year, for example, right? Ah, uh, the Canucks had a pro scout at Aiden McDonough's final game, but that was kind of it, right? Uh, it, it's different if you are able to have Chris Higgins or Mike Komisarek there, right? Like there's a different vibe to those sorts of pitches when you're talking to free agents and and you're sending a guy who's played a thousand NHL games. And I would also say on the, the Mikael Samuelsson having a guy who has the experience in the Sweden the Swedish
0: hockey. Uh, league, obviously, if you're trying to make more pitches to European free agents as well, that's something that can help you out. And you can lean on his knowledge in that area as well. Yeah, and there's
1: definitely some intriguing talent over in Sweden, no question about that. Um, So yeah, some interesting changes, some some changes that sort of, uh, I guess, big picture, big picture, the, the takeaways are the trend of the club building out their front office and changing their approach to encompass a larger tent within the framework of Rutherford's preferred setup. And actually, and this is vital, the setup that Rutherford has done the best in, right? I think as things began to go a little bit sideways on Rutherford's Pittsburgh tenure, one of the things that was noted was, you know, Garen had left and Fitzie, Tom Fitzgerald had left. And, you know, um, the COVID pandemic hit and people weren't in the office. And all of a sudden the usual hubbub that Rutherford sort of excels at, right? Like Rutherford's known as a guy who wants you to he wants to have a meeting. He wants to challenge ideas. Or he wants to you know he wants he personally wants to hear your idea. Then he wants to challenge you on yeah. your idea. Then he wants you to fight about it. Right. And he and he'll he'll poke at people, right? Like he tests people a little bit because he thinks that sort of Socratic method aids in decision making. And in his career, he's been at his best with a really vibrant cast. And a really well-staffed cast around him. And when when the front office got a little lean toward the end of his Penguins tenure, um, that's sort of when some of the mistakes started to pile up. Some of the some of the bets that you'd sort of side eye and be like, "Ooh, I don't know." Right? Uh, obviously, the body of work in Pittsburgh's, in, you know, beyond doubt. Like, I'm not criticizing by any means. I'm just saying, that, you know, instead of the Justin Schultz deal, you get the Mike Matheson deal. I'm that's something that you know you might want to. Um, questions. So you're seeing that. That's sort of the big trend that I see and, and an additional um, you know, emphasis on bringing in people with hockey experience and, and within player development, that development coach role, setting that up, transporting that idea from Pittsburgh to Vancouver. That's sort of the big thing we're seeing. The Twins figuring out something specific they want to do. That's obviously the headline item for fans in this market because of what the Twins mean to this franchise. We should also just point out, I mean, it's easy to kind of not overlook it, but just kind of blow past it
0: because we know they've been in the organization. But what a tremendous asset for young players in Abbotsford, Vancouver, to be able to work day-to-day on and off the ice with Daniel and Henrik Sedin. Like, that's a phenomenal,
1: yeah, Especially because they're in better shape than <laughs> most of the players. I mean, these guys are, at, well, and they're incredibly hard, smart ho- hockey people. Like, in terms of the detail that they played with, their understanding of that and the importance of that, right? I, I mean, I don't think it's a stretch of an, of the imagination that a couple of guys who feasted off set play set plays off draws and you know, had this unique deployment that sort of broke the models at the time, challenged our view of how specialized uh, players could be in terms of how they were used, you know, not a, not a shock to know that their vision of the game, their view of the game aligns pretty nicely with Rutherford and Alvin's in terms of the emphasis on structure. Um, and then and then the Ryan Johnson piece too, which I think underscores the extent to which, and again, I'm not trying to put the salacious spin yeah. on this. This isn't about hurt feelings. This is about when you put a new group of people together, particularly a new group of 15 people together, like a large group of people together, high stakes, high stress, New roles, new responsibilities, not a ton of pre-existing institutional knowledge still around, right? And, you know, a, a, a overall hockey operations structure that I think Rutherford and Alvin came in and found was, you know, depleted enough that that Alvine's commentary on the need to change, make changes in the amateur scouting department was uh, player reports aren't being filed correctly, right? So a, a lot to build out. There's obviously going to be some... Growing pains, or if you want to put it a more favorable or less sort of point, it's been on it a feeling out process among this new Canucks front office group, this new hockey operations group, as they figure out how to chart a course forward for an organization that desperately needs to make some progress, to make some inroads, to set a plan and stick to it. If we're going to see, you know, hockey at this time of year in this fair city, which is obviously. What we all want all right. We got a lot to
0: still get into because obviously we're not expecting that uh, interesting tidbit of news to come down from the Vancouver Canucks. But I want to talk uh, on the other side about Yuho Lamico, who had a very good weekend for himself, a little bit about the Canucks prospect system uh, in light of some interesting news as well. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review. Lots more to come on the other side. It is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet
1: 650. Ooh, delicious!
0: What is going on? Welcome back to the show. Canucks Hour, Jamie Dodd. With Canucks Insider Thomas Drantz, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. CA. We got a little uh, uh, sidetracked there in the first segment, or first with some some NBA and uh, UEFA Champions League talk, but then by the interesting move that the Canucks made in their player development department. But I wanted to start the show by saying congratulations to Yuho Lamico, Canucks center, on winning a gold medal at the World Hockey Championships with Team Finland. And what a uh, what a six months it has been for Yuho Lamico, right from the famous. After his first win press conference with Bruce Boudreaux, not really sure of his name, to finding all that success with Tyler Mott and Matthew Highmore on a line, uh, and now winning gold for his country. A major, major thrill for you, Holamico.
1: Well, and let's quickly zoom out, because it's one thing to win World Championship gold. Always a celebration, right? It's a, it's a tremendous um, tournament to win, right? It matters a lot to guys to win it once. You know, uh, there's guys who became, like, Valtteri Filpula, became a member, member of the Triple Gold yeah. Club. Um, you know, there's—the Worlds is something you want to win. Something guys really cherish when they get a chance to do it. So it's one thing to win the tournament, though. It's another to win it as when you're Finland and you're playing in your home country. Right? Like, Juho Lamako is having a time right now. I promise you that. Right? Just won it in Finland. That's absolutely sick. I'm, I, I can tell you for a fact that, that that's a career highlight for a guy like Yuho uh, who obviously had a really good season, established himself as an everyday player. You know, I, I think can be an everyday fourth-line center, so long as you have really fast line mates with him. Um, you know, he, he can't carry the puck. Like, he doesn't carry the puck really enough for me to be a top-nine guy, but he, his improvement in the circle, right, the, the work rate, the physical play, and the fact that he's sort of got sneaky... Hands and mm-hmm. tight, like he he can deflect pucks pretty well. Uh, he certainly lives at the net front. He he definitely doesn't take shifts off. Like he's an on. He gives you an honest effort. Uh, we saw when he played with Moore and Mott that you know there there was something about his game that allowed him to be you know more with those with that profile of line mates than you know he 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 is on his own. And that's a pretty interesting piece for the Canucks. Obviously, he's an RFA. He'll need to get a qualifying offer. Uh, in order for them to maintain his rights, but uh, certainly, certainly feels to me like there's something there uh, in in a bottom of the lineup role. And and congratulations to him. Uh, you know, a very good guy, a very hard working player. Uh, I can tell you for for a fact, this is one of the highlights of his career to this point. And we, it,
0: look, the tournament it it means a lot for North American players as well. But the the kind of cliche that you hear that it means even more for European players that that's true, right? So, and as you said, to win. Uh, against Canada, no less, you know, the, the powerhouse country, right, in your home country of Finland. Really, really cool moment for Juho Lamiko. And yeah, I mean, a guy who all of a sudden, as you start to kind of try to pencil in what the Canucks roster is going to look like next year, it's pretty easy to be, yeah, Juho Lamiko is going to be the fourth line center, right? Like that, it's an open competition still, and we'll see who else comes in to kind of join the mix there. But it's easy to look at him as having pole position for that spot uh, a couple months out from training camp here. For the Canucks, Um, I did want to talk about another Finnish hockey player as well, and not so much about the player itself, and that that is uh, Tony Utinen, who the Canucks drafted in 2018 and uh, will not be signing by the June 1st deadline uh, coming up, which means they will lose his rights as an NHL player, and I don't think. You know, there's a lot to say necessarily about that decision in and of itself. I I don't think it's particularly controversial when you look at how the player has developed. But I do think it's a good occasion to kind of go back and look at, one, the 2018 draft in general for the Vancouver Canucks, which, of course, began in great fashion, taking Quinn Hughes with the 7th overall pick. After that, maybe not so much, but also just the recent drafting of the Canucks in general. And How we've gotten to this spot where their prospect pool does not look, it doesn't look like a prospect pool of a
1: team that has missed the playoffs consistently in recent years, Trancer. The Canucks have a contender's prospect pool. They do not have a contender's roster. Yeah, Not not a great spot to be in. No, it's, uh, you know, I know I make this point enough that people don't like it. Surprise, surprise. But has to be said because you can't you can't understand in my view what's necessary for this team to accomplish this summer if you don't understand where they are in my view and I think it's easy like the Canucks gave you enough breadcrumbs that if you wanted to follow a really rose-colored path (laughs) if you wanted to follow a path where you're like, they were a 106-point team after Bruce Boudreaux. You know, just picking up breadcrumbs as you go. Um, you know, their best players are still pretty young, right? Demko, Hughes, and Pedersen, my goodness, what a, what a core to build around. By the way, not disputing any of that. That's all factually true. You could get yourself to a point where you're like, oh, we just need to see this roster tweaked, and they should be, you know, if not competitive with the likes of Colorado, at least competitive with the likes of Edmonton, right? Um, at least competitive with the likes of St. Louis. Like, surely they can hit that level. Of course, that level's not good enough, A, right? Like, you want to be a top, top team in this league. But also, this was the number one team in the NHL by five-on-five five save percentage, right? This, th- there was so much that went their way in the latter 57 games of the year, and they were still, what, 11th best by point percentage, even in that stretch, second in the Pacific? Uh, not bad playoff quality but playoff quality is not the bar here playoff quality is not the test right which brings us back to the drafts and and the prospect system this team hasn't this team has a contenders system in part because they've behaved like a contender in terms of the picks they've made and the picks they've traded particularly over the last two years you know i find it ironic that we're looking at it's a big conversation point on Twitter today. We're looking at the 2018 draft and being like, oh boy, what a lean one. When, you know, two years on, we're going to be looking at 2020 and 2021 and sorry, Faber. But, <laughs> but just being like, oh my God, those those drafts are every bit as lean as the absolute depths of the, of the Mike Gillis era, drafting wise. And, and I, that's not fate, by the way. There's obviously a chance that th- there's a player or two that breaks out always, but from a probable standpoint, like for t- talking probabilistically, like that's a very likely outcome. The attrition rate on prospects is through the roof, and and 2018 is sort of a good example of it, right? I-, I mean, you've got Jet Wu, highly regarded, a super high pedigree kid coming into the WHL, and he was a top five pick at the priority selection draft. Um, you know, just hasn't quite hit, and he he's now at an age 21, 22 where you know, if he doesn't have a great summer and come in and push for NHL minutes next year, which seems like a stretch considering that he played forward uh, for the Abbotsford Comets in the, in the crucial moments of this season, uh, you know, he, he begins to be a guy who, if he figures it out, that's found money. That's not something you count on at this point. Uh, Tyler Madden. The Tyler Madden pick is one of the most misunderstood because Madden obviously hasn't developed as you'd hoped in terms of that high-end playmaking ability with the... Sort of gumption, the the agitating side of his game, which which you know he'd projected to maybe be should he hit at the NHL level, but the fact is that the Canucks that was a good pick. The Canucks monetized Madden for Tyler Toffoli. Now we all know what happened with the indefensible from the organization, but it doesn't change the fact no. that if as, you yeah, as it relates to the draft pick, it was a good job. If you make the sixty eighth pick and mine enough value that you can land Tyler Toffoli in addition with you know by parcelling that 68th overall pick with a, you know, second rounder in two year, two years down the line and getting real value a guy who should have been a mainstay for this organization for years if you'd managed it right, you know, that's not a loss. That's not a bad pick. It doesn't matter what Madden becomes once you monetize it because the exercise of the draft is not to build a team, it's to bring value into your organization and Madden is mission accomplished. Um, you know, then you get into the 5th and 6th si- and 7th rounders and it's like Matthew Thyson and um Menukin who's probably not likely to hit and then what? Is there one other guy? Uh no, that's it. It's that's
0: Utenin, it. Menukin and then and Thyson. And Tyson. Utenin, who yeah. they're not
1: going to sign. Yeah. And and not a surprise there by the way. Uh, you know, I sort of had been reporting for a couple months here that my understanding was that Linus or is it Linus? Do you know if
0: it's Linus or Linus Fapes? Uh it is Linus. I said Linus to Patrick Alvin and he corrected me saying Linus. So okay, go go. with
1: Linus. Linus. Patrick Alvin. Spell check. Um, So Patrick Alvin hit F7 on uh, Chris Faber and it's Linus Carlson. Anyway, I've been reporting for a while that Linus Carlson my understanding was Linus Carlson's the only Canucks prospect based in Europe that they intended to sign uh, over the course of this offseason. So not a surprise to me that Utenin uh, wasn't, sl- uh, wasn't signed. That happens. Like that happens. European Late round defensemen, some of them are going to hit, some of them aren't. You know, you it's still worthwhile taking a couple of them. Some of those guys who profile like that, like J- Jonathan Myrenberg, if you're looking for, you know, a, an upside guy, a guy who I do think will ultimately sign at th- with this organization at some point from the 2020, 2021 drafts, like Myrenberg to me uh, might be the clubhouse leader uh, up there with Yoni Irma of every bit, every bit at that level in terms of how he's regarded within the industry and within the organization. So, um. Anyway, you got you got to take those swings. The 2018 draft class is mis- being misunderstood in my view because A the Madden pick is a totally fine one and B um you know that that is not the problem with that draft class is not what picks were made and who missed or who hit, right? At the end of the day if you come out if you come out of that draft with a stud one A defenseman, that's a win. When you come out of that draft with stud one A defenseman and an asset good enough to win the bidding for Tyler Toffoli, in addition, you know, one one parceled with another another pick, that's a win. That's a big win. Like that's a good draft for the Canucks. If they were able to do that year after year, this organization would be in a much better spot. The problem is, though, is that you know they were down their third uh, their fourth rounder, right? They yep. didn't they, they didn't make rounder. they made six picks, not seven. Or ten because they weren't a very good team. They had the seventh overall pick and they lost the draft lottery. Right, <laughs> they were worse than the seventh overall pick seems. Um, they they didn't have a, a extra bullets as a rebuild in, in a rebuilding season, and they traded one of the best prospects within that group for a player to accelerate their sort of playoff contention timeline with the Toffoli deal. And then didn't sign the player and took a step back again. It's the strategic incoherence visible outside of that draft that's the problem. Not the actual work at the draft table itself. Which is more than defensible, a good outcome for this organization. And the thing that really stands out about the Canucks
0: drafting record is that that 2018 draft, that's the last time that they've had a pick in each of the first three rounds. Right? They took Quinn Hughes round one, uh, Jet Wu round two, Tyler Madden round three. Since then, they have always missed at least one of those rounds, right? 2019, Pod Coles and Hoaglander round one and two, didn't have a pick in round three. 2020, didn't pick until the third round, Yoni Yermo in, in pick number 82. Uh, and last year, of course, didn't have their first round pick, didn't have a third or fourth round pick uh, in addition to that. And then this year, as things currently stand, and we know they could add, they, they don't have, have a their second. first
1: round pick, but they don't have their second. So well, that streak could easily continue. And the, the results haven't justified this. The results haven't justified this dearth of picks, right? I mean, and, and it's a situational, it's a lack of situational awareness at the end of the day, right? It's that they've been buying, they've been buying pieces for their NHL roster on their credit card at the expense of their future. And the pieces they bought also haven't built a good enough team, right? It's not like they're the lightning and you're not worried about it, right? It's not like they're the Rutherford-era Penguins, right? Rutherford was the Pittsburgh Penguins' GM for, what, six years, seven years? They made one first-round pick in his time there? Well, who cares? They won back-to-back cups. You know, some of those deals weren't good, by the way. Like, a first, they traded a first-round pick for Ryan Reeves. No one would say that's a good trade. Uh, In fact, they traded Reeves on, like, five months later. They wouldn't even say that that was a good trade. Who cares? In the big picture, they were smart enough about where they were to trade their future to to spend on their credit card because the time was then, and it was. They won two cups. They gave Malkin and Crosby one last run. And, and you know, that's well worth it. That's well worth it. Chasing the now, the way the Vancouver Canucks have done, has, has left this organization truly hobbled heading into this offseason. And you have to see that clearly. Like, you have to see clearly that this is a team that even if you take the most optimistic spin on what they are now is a fringe playoff team, right? A fringe playoff team. You can maybe argue to me that they're better than Nashville next season. And I'd be like, okay, they might be, but you can't argue to me that they're better than Vegas next season. I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. There's more here than there is in Dallas. Um, I'm not buying that. They're better than, you know, the Kings next year or the Oilers next year, uh, or the flames next year without significant changes. Um, So, you know, what they have on the roster is not good enough. And what they have coming is nil. And that doesn't just hurt them in terms of having a pipeline of talent coming into the organization to, you know, provide cheap labor, to provide brighter days ahead. It also hurts them in terms of being able to pounce on opportunities when they come up. And so you're left with... You know, Rutherford has, on multiple occasions, used the word unravel. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly it. You have to accept, I think, if you're going to understand what needs to happen this offseason. And if you're going to react to moves the right way, right? If you're going to react to a, a move that the Canucks make to take a step back. Or if you're going to analyze a move in which the Canucks go for it again. Continue to press forward. I think you have to first understand that this is an organization that is stuck, right? They are spinning their wheels in the mud. And they can't get traction. That's the situation that they find themselves on this sort of road trip to hopefully contention. And I think starting there, I think if we can accept and agree on that as a starting point, we're going to have a, a much easier time digesting and understanding and analyzing this offseason. Uh, but I, I get the sense that in this marketplace, the idea that this organization is stuck is not is is a relatively controversial take. I don't know that that's w- widely accepted even if it does seem to match the noises we're hearing from upper management.
0: Well, and specifically zeroing in on the draft and the prospect pipeline, they've been very open about we would like to add picks. We don't have we don't have enough picks. We don't have enough coming in our prospect pipeline, yep. right? And again, it's you just look at the recent draft history and it's not hard to see why. You know, I spoke about how often they've been missing picks in the first three rounds. They haven't had, like, a bonus pick, you know, in one of those rounds since 2017 when they had two picks in the second round. And they had that second one in the second round because of the John Tortorella situation. Yeah, it wasn't right? a trade. So It wasn't even as if, no. oh, we're going to go out and proactively acquire one. It was just kind of fell into their laps more than anything else. And since then, when they have added, you know— Look, we talk about quantity, and that's so important, but I look at the 2019 draft. Okay, they picked a bunch of times, but five of those picks were in the sixth round or later, right? They picked yeah. three times in the sixth round, twice in the seventh round. Now, hey, but, Aiden McDonough, Archer Silovs, those those could still and, turn uh, into really valuable pieces. Was that pieces. the Kosmar Kosmar, too? Kosmar, yep.
1: So, I mean, there's there's a few guys there that are very interesting. Yeah. Well, well worth your time. And look, I'm not—picks are great, wherever you have them, mm-hmm.
0: but— you know, I think adding those extra picks in the sixth and seventh round can only kind of paper over not losing your premium picks. So totally much, right. Correct. Like eventually, that's
1: going to catch up to you. And I think we have this tendency. Well, well, look at look at Lyndon Gadjevich really quickly. Right, yeah. Lyndon Gadjevich are not ma- like those aren't hits by any means, but those guys are going to play NHL games. Like those guys are probably going to hit 150 NHL games in their careers. They both spent the entire season for the most part on a 23 man roster last year with a good summer from either of them. Um, you know, you're going to see meaningful NHL minutes played by both of those guys because if you miss in the top 60, you get organizational depth players. If you miss in the fifth round, you never hear about you don't you, get anything. You, you yeah. get Christopher Gun- uh, Gunnerson. You know who Christopher Gunnerson is? Neither do I. Cole Candela. <laughs> That's enough. <another laughs> well, I know who Cole Candela is. That was a good pick, actually. It just <laughs> he didn't quite develop the way uh, the way they'd hoped, but there was a lot of a uh, lot of people who liked his game anyway. Cole Candela is a found bad the, example. I found the world's first Cole Candela why didn't stand. You, why didn't you go with Rodrigo Abels or something like that? Let's go with Rodrigo <laughs> Abels. Sure. Uh, anyway, point being, yes, you're right. They need to add high-value picks. Desperately. Desperately. And honestly, I think they should add a ton of high-value picks in both this draft and in the drafts to come. Not just for the players that you can pick with them, but as cash in hand to pounce on opportunities particularly if you're able to net some of those picks in exchange for cap space. Now, I do think they'd prefer players. They want young guys. But for me, draft picks plus cap space, that those are avenues to improvement, avenues that for now anyway as the Canucks try and get their car started <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, avenues that for the moment anyway are blocked, blocked to this organization, which is why they're stuck. That's task 1 for this Canucks club and this new look Canucks hockey operations group this offseason at yeah. least that's how I see it. and and
0: more so than just going you know we always do the thing where you go through the draft and say oh they picked this guy in the fourth round but then you know really good player X went in the fifth round and yeah that always hurts but more so than the kind of individual analysis of each pick for me it's just you got to pick more and you got to have more good picks like that's the number one easiest way to improve your prospect pipeline pick a lot
1: yeah. in the draft pick and, a lot in the higher and if you can. please please stop Stop with the um, Canucks. Take absolute lottery ticket, high upside guy uh, ahead of WHL player. We all know the day it happens is going to be better than the player they picked. Uh, consecutive drafts, so- like we're we're having a completely different conversation. If they have st- sort of and Stankoven, Stankoven. and yeah. and that's not hindsight. Those no. were misses. The day they happened, we knew it. We all talked about it the day those draft picks were made. Still true today frustrating that is going to do it for us
0: today enjoy game seven between the Carolina hurricanes and the new york rangers you'll be able to hear it here on sportsnet 650 we will be back tomorrow to break that down look ahead to the conference final matchups as well you're listening to the home of the canucks sportsnet 650